We've been talking about the issues uh, that America was grappling with during the years leading up to the Civil War. And I hope next time to actually talk about uh, developments in church history during the Civil War. But uh, there, we're still in a period of increasing conflict over primarily slavery, uh, but there are also other issues involved too. So while Southern Christian slaveholders were misusing Christianity as a way to promote docility and obedience in enslaved persons, some Christians we know were mainly in the North, but they were advocating for the abolition of enslavement of blacks. So they were beginning to fight for uh, the abolition of slavery. The, the form that the fighting took, so to speak, was not actually picking up a gun at this stage, but it was doing things like helping, helping enslaved persons escape from slavery through the Underground Railroad. Uh, for others, it was publishing books and materials, newspapers, uh, to you know, try to persuade people that this, this peculiar institution needed to end. Early efforts by some Christians beginning before 1700 to abolish enslavement and the slave trade include efforts by Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, and another prominent uh, clergyman, Samuel Gorton. Now, a lot of us don't realize this. We think of Quakers as peaceful uh, people who, you know, you could never imagine a Quaker owning slaves. But in fact, American Quakers, 70% of them, owned slaves between the years 1681 and 1705. But the 1688 Germantown Quaker petition against slavery encouraged the manumission or freeing of the enslaved. Manumission is just a fancier word for freeing a person, a man. The petition finally led to the end of slavery among the Society of Friends, as the Quakers were known, in about 1776, and in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, settled by Quakers by 1780. Rhode Island Quakers associated with Moses Brown were among the first in America to free slaves. Benjamin Rush, one of America's founding fathers, strongly opposed slavery and wrote pamphlets against it. John Woolman, a prominent Quaker, gave up most of his business in 1756 to devote himself to campaigning against slavery, along with other Quakers. And many colonial legislatures began limiting slavery, although the ways that they limited slavery didn't extend to laws that would eventually end the practice. They limited slavery in different ways, um, but they, other laws solidified uh, the hold, the stranglehold that enslavement had upon blacks. While enslavement was becoming less common in northern colonies, participation by northern colonists in the slave trade increased. And one of the things that is, um, you know, really startling, uh, one of the books, I didn't bring it today, but uh, 
Christian um, uh, slavery, the problem of slavery in Christian America by Joel McDermott. He talks in detail about the individual uh, prominent Rhode Island colonists who made their fortunes on the slave trade. Um, Brown University uh, is a university that was founded on monies that these you know, wealthy northerners accumulated because of the, the slave trade. Increasing curbs on importation of slaves, both by various states and federally, culminated in the 1820 Act to protect the commerce of the United States and punish the crime of piracy. So on the one hand, you know, it seems like the government is finally starting to do something about the slave trade, but individual states were, during the same period, were actually uh, putting more uh, restrictions on slaves on what they could do and not do, and uh, the laws were becoming more strict, even as they ostensibly were trying to end the slave trade. They were doing nothing to end slavery. So this law made importing slaves into the US a death penalty offense. Now, of course, when it comes to laws, we know a lot of people don't follow laws. They break laws. And so, you know, people continued smuggling in, you know, just as today, uh, there are human traffickers bringing, uh, smuggling people into the United States across the borders illegally. The same sorts of things went on uh, where people were essentially continuing to bring captured people from Africa and also the Caribbean. Uh, some, some slaves were being extracted from the Caribbean and South America and being brought north uh, while technically this was illegal. So some, for some people, opinions were beginning to change from maybe thinking about gradual emancipation and they were also, some people were thinking about the resettlement of freed blacks in Africa. Uh, so, you know, let's repatriate these people who have been brought over forcibly. Um, and then some people uh, began to develop this idea of immediatism. And we'll talk more about that a little later, but basically immediatism is, let's immediately free the slaves, let's not be concerned with political or social issues around freeing the slaves, let's just do it and we'll sort out the problems that result later. One prominent clergyman was Lyman Beecher, who lived from 1775 to 1863, and he was a Presbyterian minister and the father of 13 children, many of whom became noted figures. One of his daughters was Harriet Beecher Stowe, and of course she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And also he was the father of Henry Ward Beecher, who was a well-known minister, social reformer, and abolitionist. Lyman Beecher attended Yale College, graduating in 1797. Beecher attended Yale Divinity College in 1798 and was ordained as a Presbyterian minister pastoring in Connecticut and New York. But during Beecher's time pastoring in Connecticut in the early part of the 19th century, the Unitarian controversy arose in New England. Unitarianism has its roots in ancient anti-Trinitarian heresies such as Arianism, 
the belief that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not eternal, uh, that he was essentially a created being. Uh, also, the idea of Sibelianism or modalism, uh, which is the belief that God exists in three modes, not three distinct persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Michael Servetus, which I think I, I might have mentioned him when we were talking about uh, Reformation figures, Michael Servetus was a, Span a Spaniard who lived from about 1511 to 1553. So we kind of have to go back to uh, Reformation times to recognize that there were people who were beginning to formulate these Unitarian ideas during the, uh, the Reformation and Renaissance. He was a physician, a theologian, and a Renaissance humanist, and he is believed by many to be an important figure in the development of Unitarian ideas. In 1531, he had published his theological treatise, De Trinitatis Erroribus, on the errors about the Trinity, in which he rejected the Nicene dogma of the Trinity and proposed that the Son was the union of the divine logos with the man Jesus, miraculously born from the Virgin Mary through the intervention of God's Spirit. And he profoundly rejected all Orthodox Trinitarian creeds. Unitarian ideas spread throughout Europe and England during the upheavals of the Renaissance and Reformation. And Unitarians were persecuted by both Roman Catholics and Protestants, but some Anabaptists actually embraced unit Unitarian theology. Um, Unitarian also, Unitarianism, this is kind of you know another footnote, uh, but Unitarianism found a, uh, a home in Eastern Europe, in what is today uh, Romania and other parts of Eastern European countries, and it became deeply embedded there, which a lot of people don't realize. But um, you know, so along the lines of you know the idea that there's nothing new under the sun, these are some old ideas that are cropping up during this period of American history. And there were English Unitarians during the colonial period who basically brought these ideas to the Americas. Unitarian ideas meshed well with Enlightenment philosophy with a focus on rationalism and as a backlash against the First and Second Great Awakenings. Unitarianism in the United States followed essentially the same development as in England and passed through the stages of Arminianism and Arianism to rationalism and a modernism based on an acceptance of the results of the comparative study of all religions. Uh, for someone today in the 21st century, if you were listening to a Unitarian from the 18th century, you would listen to this, you know, if, if he or she explained the ideas behind Unitarianism, it would begin to sound like new age, you know, what we would call new age thinking. You know, it was very uh, nebulous and, you know, there's one God and he's, you know, all throughout the universe and, you know, sometimes they even kind of become somewhat pantheistic, but um, it's basically based on heresies. In the early 18th century, Arminianism presented itself in New England 
and sporadically elsewhere and recall that the Church of England and the Methodists were theologically Arminian. In other words, they rejected the Calvinistic idea that God predetermines, he predestines and predetermines who will be saved. Arminian thinking is that a human being out of his or her own will, emotions, souls, spirit, whatever, that person is able to choose God for himself or herself. That God, you know, God doesn't necessarily predestine people to be saved. Before the War for Independence, Aryan ideas circulated and French influences were widespread in the direction of deism. There were a lot of, you know, famous French de deists and uh, the philosophes who were basically, you know, spitting up new philosophies that were essentially humanist and, um, in essence, anti-Christian. Although these idea, these groups were not very well organized uh, during this period in the U.S., later they became so. By the mid-1700s, Harvard College, founded by the Puritans, the Calvinistic Puritans, represented the most advanced Unitarian thought of the time in the colonies. And I always, you know, when I come to this period in American history and I think about how did this happen, like in four generations or so, you know, these parts of the country that were settled by the, Pur the Puritans, the Calvinist Puritans, Sola Scriptura, the Bible, you know, uh, salvation by faith alone and all these ideas, and it's degenerated into this mishmash of philosophy and rationalism and deism and Unitarianism. How was that possible? At the same time, several prominent clergymen in New England preached what was essentially Unitarianism. And one of the most prominent was Jonathan Mayhew. The, uh, he was a pastor in Boston, Massachusetts from 1747 to 1766. So, the, you know, these odd... New Age-ish ideas were circulating uh, in America before the, the War for Independence. Mayhew preached the strict unity of God. There are not three persons in the Godhead, just, just God. The subordinate nature of Christ. Christ is not God. Uh, and salvation by character or essentially works. You just be good and you'll be saved. Charles Chauncey, from, uh, who lived from 1705 to 1787, uh, was the pastor of the first church in Boston, again, founded by the Puritans, from 1727 until his death, and he was both a Unitarian and a Universalist. Universalism is the idea that God will save all people, and because hell does not exist, none will be condemned there eternally. Everybody's going to get saved. The churches in New England were primarily congregationalists. And again, these were the descendants of the Puritan church communities. In congregational uh, churches, uh, they're governed primarily by the congregation, not by a board of elders or by bishops. They may have elders, but the, the members themselves of these congregationalist churches meet periodically to vote on issues as a way of making decisions about the governance of the church. So in other words, each church is independent, 
not, you know, there's, there's no larger denominational affiliation and each church, you know, makes its own decisions about how it's going to stru be structured and function. The foundation for this type of church government is based on the notion of the priesthood of all believers from 1 Peter 2.9. Now, many New England Congregationalist churches were pastored by ministers trained in the increasingly liberal seminaries at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. William Ellery Channing, a prominent and popular Unitarian preacher and others in sympathy with him had excited much anxiety throughout New England. Lyman Beecher, on the other hand, a Presbyterian and, and an Orthodox Presbyterian, began to actively preach against Unitarian ideas in New York and Connecticut. Later, Beecher was called to pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, right down the road, influenced by the concerns of many that the West needed to be one for Christ. So this part of the U.S. at that point in history was considered the West. Um, you know, we might not think of ourselves as being part of the West, you know, however you describe it. But at that time, uh, most of the population on the U.S. was concentrated on the eastern seacoast. And, um, you know, this was pretty much an area that was unexplored, untamed, and wild. So Beecher served as president of Lane Seminary in Cincinnati and pastored the Second Presbyterian Church of Cincinnati, which later merged with First Presbyterian into the modern-day Covenant First Presbyterian Church. He was very concerned with educating ministers to serve on the Western mission fields of the expanding U.S. Now, during Beecher's presidency of Lane Seminary, the student body was divided over slavery and abolition. Although Beecher was not directly involved, Lane Seminary students began holding a series of debates over slavery, colonization, in other words, the repatriation of freed black and slave back to Africa, or the abolition of slavery with admission of slaves into US citizenship. Many of the students were from Southern slaveholding families. Slaveholders from Kentucky came over the Ohio River to incite mob violence and for several weeks, Beecher lived in a turmoil, not knowing whether rioters might destroy the seminary and the houses of the professors. Beecher also was very anti-Catholic and published anti-Catholic nativist pamphlets. And you should be aware of this idea of nativism. Nativism is the political a policy of promoting or protecting the interests of native or indigenous inhabitants over those of immigrants, including the support of restriction of immigration. So, you know, we're familiar with this idea in the sense that today there are a lot of Americans who feel we should restrict immigration. Uh, nativist sentiment has been here pretty much from the beginning. Of course, the irony is that white Europeans coming to America would then turn around and be against the immigration of others from other parts of the world. Um, now, for a lot of Americans at this period who had nativistic sentiments, um, it, it, most of them came from Protestant religious backgrounds, and they were most strongly opposed to Roman Catholics, especially immigrants 
from places like Ireland and Italy, who it was believed would be more loyal to the Pope than they would be to the American government and the American or Protestant way of life. Now, another very important person in this period that we need to discuss is Charles Grandison Finney, or Charles G. Finney. Lived from 1792 to 1875, and he was a Presbyterian minister and leader in the Second Great Awakening. Although Presbyterian, Finney departed from traditional Reformed theology by teaching that people have the free will to choose salvation. And he was an evangelist. He was, you know, part of this Second Great Awakening. He's an itinerant minister going around and holding revivals. Now, if, if you're, you know, trying to have successful revivals and get a lot of people saved, it's probably helpful to have a point of view that people can choose salvation. Because if they can choose salvation, you know, you can encourage them to do so. So... Departing from the traditional idea that God predestines those who will become Christians, who will be saved, you know, that makes your revival a whole lot more successful. So he definitely embraced more of an Arminian idea about, uh, you know, this notion that people can freely choose God and that God doesn't first begin that work of salvation in their hearts. Finney was best known as a flamboyant revivalist preacher from 1825 to 1835 in the so-called burned-over district in upstate New York and Manhattan. He was an opponent of old-school or Calvinist Presbyterian theology. He was an advocate of Christian perfectionism, and he did a lot of religious writing. Now, this um, term, the burned-over district in upstate New York, this was the same area where there had been a lot of revivals, a lot of outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and ironically, where Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, got his start. Um, there had been so many revivals in that part of New York that people began to describe it as, you know, the Holy Spirit has burned it over. So, you know, that... That term probably doesn't communicate well to us, but for people in those days, what they meant was this place has been burned out by revival fire, essentially. Now, together with several other evangelical leaders, his religious views led him to promote social reforms, such as the abolition of black enslaved persons and equal education for women and blacks. From 1835, he taught at Oberlin College of Ohio near Cleveland, and Oberlin College still exists, uh, which accepted students without regard to race or sex. Now, this idea of Christian perfectionism, or perfection, is the name given to theological concepts that attempt to describe a process of achieving spiritual maturity or perfection. The ultimate goal of this process is union with God, characterized by pure love of God and other people, as well as personal holiness or sanctification. For some, it meant you don't sin anymore. For others, it meant, well, you might still sin, but it's, sin is not a pervasive pattern in your life, and as you continue in your Christian journey, the amount of sinning you do becomes less and less. 
And various terms have been used to describe this concept, such as entire sanctification, perfect love, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So some people, you know, took the idea of sinning less and equating that with getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, people also use the term the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or baptism by fire or the second blessing or the second work of grace. So these are some terms that various Christian groups in that time period and even up until the present will use to describe this idea of sanctification or Christian perfection. While the term Christian perfection is of relatively recent origin, historically, the idea begins, of course, with scripture itself and has been part of Christian theology and teaching from the very beginning. Starting with Matthew 5:48, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. All the major traditions of Christianity, ranging from Eastern Orthodox to Roman Catholic, to Protestant Reformed, Anglican, and dissenting, have Christian maturity or perfection as a goal of the Christian life. In America, these ideas would take on a new aspect as part of the emerging holiness movements. And once we get through the Civil War period, we'll begin to talk about the holiness movements that begin to emerge in the latter part of the 19th century. The old school, new school controversy was a schism of the Presbyterian Church, which took place in 1837 and lasted until the Civil War when further splits took place. Essentially, by the Civil War, the Presbyterian Church had fractured in America into the Northern Church and the Southern Church, and they had completely broken off uh, any type of relationship. The old school, led by Charles Hodge of Princeton Theological Seminary, was much more conservative theologically and did not support the revival movements. It called for traditional Calvinist orthodoxies outlined in the Westminster Standards, and those include the, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter and Larger Catechisms. The new school derived from the reinterpretation of Calvinism by New England Congregational Theologians, Jonathan Edwards, we've talked about him before, Samuel Hopkins and Joseph Bellamy, and wholly embraced revivalism. Though there was much diversity among them, the Edwardsian Calvinists commonly rejected what they called old Calvinism in light of their understandings of God, the human person, and the Bible. Later, both the old school and new school branches split further over the issue of slavery into southern and northern churches. While controversies between traditional Orthodox Protestant the theology and Unitarian theology split white American Christians, and revivals and divergent sects such as Adventists and Mormons emerged, the plight of more than two million enslaved blacks, again, population statistics from about 1830, became the most pressing issue facing the United States. Despite the horrific conditions, enslaved blacks continued to struggle to escape from slavery and press forward into freedom. And of course, one of the most notable to have achieved freedom and leadership before the Civil War is Frederick Douglass. <clears throat> 
And although this is a little bit dark, this is from an actual photograph of Douglas. There are many, uh, there are actually many photographs of Douglas. Douglas was um, very excited about the development of the camera because he believed that the camera could record uh, scenes and images that before the camera existed could only be described or drawn in pictures or paintings. And he wanted, he wanted to see the camera used to depict the horrors of slavery and all of those conditions that were so terrible that many Americans had not seen themselves with their own eyes. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay in Talbot County, Maryland in 1817 or 1818. After escaping from slavery in Maryland, he became a national leader of the abolition movement in Massachusetts and New York, becoming famous for his anti-slavery speeches and writings. Douglas's early life was typical for most enslaved children. He seldom saw his mother and did not know his father, who was probably white and might have been his master. He also had Native American ancestry. After separation from his mother during infancy, young Frederick lived with his maternal grandmother, Betsy Bailey, who was also enslaved, and his maternal grandfather, Isaac, who was free. Betsy would live until 1849 to see her grandson achieve freedom. At the age of six, Douglas was separated from his grandparents and moved to the Y House Plantation, also in Maryland. In 1826, Douglas was given to Lucretia Auld, wife of Thomas Auld, who sent him to serve Thomas's brother, Hugh Auld, and his wife, Sophia Auld, in Baltimore. So he was, in essence, he, he was transferred from the plantation into a major U.S. city, uh, which, you know, gave him a lot of advantages. From the day he arrived, Sophia saw to it that Douglas was properly fed and clothed and that he slept in a bed with sheets and a blanket. Douglas described her as a kind and tender-hearted woman who treated him as a human being. And that's a quote from one of his autobiographies. When Douglas was about 12, Sophia Auld began teaching him the alphabet. Hugh Auld, her husband, disapproved of the tutoring, feeling that literacy would encourage Douglas to desire freedom. And of course, in many places, it was illegal to teach a slave to read. Uh, but, you know, obviously this woman took a different approach. Douglas later referred to this as the first decidedly anti-slavery lecture he had ever heard. So he, you know, he was hearing Hugh Auld say these things about, uh, you know, if you learn to read, you're going to want freedom next. Very well, thought I, wrote Douglas, knowledge unfits a child to be a slave. I instinctively assented to the proposition, and from that moment, I understood the direct pathway from slavery to freedom. And again, this is a quote from one of his autobiographies. In other words, what he is saying is, if this, if this person is against me learning to read and write and become literate, and he's saying that will encourage me to become free, then I see laid out before me the path to freedom, which is education. Um, later, the Alds uh, discontinued teaching Douglas to read. 
Hugh Auld finally got his wife to stop being human. Douglas was determined to continue learning and found white children who would help him, as well as learning on his own secretly. Just like Richard Allen and Absalom Jones and many other enterprising enslaved persons who were determined to become literate. During his teenage years, he was exposed to Christianity when Sophia Auld would read the Bible, and he also heard some sermons. He began to read and copy Bible verses as part of his efforts to become literate. In his last autobiography titled Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, published in 1882, he described his conversion to Christianity. I was not more than 13 years old when, in my loneliness and destitution, I longed for someone to whom I could go, as to a father and protector. The preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hansen was the means of causing me to feel that in God I had such a friend. He thought that all men, great and small, bond and free, were sinners in the sight of God, that they were by nature rebels against his government, and that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know well, I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. I consulted a good old colored man named Charles Lawson, and in tones of holy affection, he told me to pray and to cast all my care upon God. This I sought to do, and though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everyone converted. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. Douglas was mentored by Reverend Charles Lawson, and early in his political activism, he often included biblical allusions and religious metaphors in his speeches. Although a believer, he strongly criticized religious hypocrisy and accused slaveholders of wickedness, lack of morality, and failure to follow the golden rule. Douglas distinguished between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of America, and considered religious slaveholders and clergymen who defended slavery as the most brutal, sinful, and cynical of all who represented wolves in sheep's clothing. In his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, very famous speech. And of course, you can read it on the internet, and I encourage you to look it up and read it. Given on July 5th, 1852, he sharply criticized the attitude of religious people who kept silent about slavery and held that religious ministers committed a blasphemy when they taught it as sanctioned by religion, as many Southern ministers did. Douglas had himself finally escaped from enslavement when he was about 20 years old, aided by Anna Murray, a free black woman who lived in Baltimore, Maryland. Disguised as a sailor, carrying papers given to him by a free black sailor, 
He managed to get to Pennsylvania by team, uh, train rather, and steamboat, and then to New York City. Douglas's escape took less than 24 hours, and he soon was able to have Anna Murray, with whom he was in love, come to New York where they were married 11 days after Douglas had escaped. Frederick Douglass went on to become one of the most influential Americans of the 19th century, tirelessly advocating and agitating for the abolition of slavery. He also advocated for women's rights, temperance, the abolition of alcohol, uh, peace, land reform, free public education, and the abolition of capital punishment. Now, Douglas also came into contact with John Brown. And this picture, unfortunately, is very dark. Um, it is an early photograph of John Brown. Well, actually, I should say it isn't even a photograph. It's a daguerreotype, which was an early form of capturing an image that predates the camera. Um, John Brown, who lived from 1800 to 1859, was perhaps the most famous of the radical abolitionists. A man of strong religious beliefs, Brown believed he was an instrument of God raised up to strike the death blow to American slavery. Brown believed violence was necessary to end slavery and advocated immediate emancipation of the enslaved. And again, this idea of immediatism the idea that the enslaved should be immediately freed and any resulting political and social problems could be sorted out later. Unlike the Quakers, Brown believed the use of violence was necessary to end enslavement, and Brown gained national attention when he led anti-slavery volunteers and his own sons among them during the bleeding Kansas crisis of the late 1850s, a state-level civil war over whether the Kansas Territory would enter the Union as a slave state or a free state. You know, Kansas is right next door to Missouri. Missouri was a slave state. At this point in American history, Kansas is not yet a state. It's simply a territory. And people began rushing into Kansas. Settlers were rushing into Kansas because southern, you know, pro-slavery folks were thinking, well, if there are too many Northerners that go to Kansas and settle there, they will vote to have that territory come into the Union as a free state, and slavery will not be allowed there. So people were rushing into Kansas from both sides of the controversy, and they were, in essence, having you know their own civil war. Um, there was a lot going on in Kansas, unfortunately. <clears throat> but Kansas was later voted in as a free state on January 29, 1861. In May 1856, Brown and his sons killed five supporters of slavery in the Pottawatomie Massacre, which was in Kansas, a response to the sacking of Lawrence, Kansas by pro-slavery forces. Brown went on to lead more attacks in Kansas. In October 1859, Brown led a raid on the Federal Armory at Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Um, at that time, Virginia was a gigantic area. It was what is today the modern states of Virginia and West Virginia all in one. 
and he, he uh, intended this raid would start a slave liberation movement that would spread south. In other words, his goal was, I've you know, engaged in armed conflict in Kansas, seeking to make sure that Kansas is a free territory and later a free state. And now I'm going to raid this armory and take all the weapons and I'm gonna arm abolitionists, white abolitionists, and I'm gonna arm slaves and you know, we're gonna start a civil war. He had actually pre prepared a provisional constitution for the revised slavery-free United States he hoped to bring about. He seized the armory at Harper's Ferry, but seven people were killed and 10 or more injured. And again, Brown had intended to arm slaves with weapons from the armory, but only a few slaves joined his revolt. Now the penalty for giving weapons to a slave was death. Um, many of, this is beginning from the earliest colonial times, there were laws on the books that said if a white person helps a slave escape, arms a slave to enable that slave to escape to freedom, or does anything, you know, like this, uh, death is the penalty. And of course the slave would be put to death. Um, you know, there were a lot of people who thought Brown had gone way too far. And one of those was Frederick Douglass. Brown met with Frederick Douglass and other radical abolitionists in Detroit on March 12, 1859, in preparation for this raid. And Douglass met Brown again when Brown visited his home two months before leading the raid on Harper's Ferry. Brown actually penned his provisional constitution during his two-week stay with Douglas in Douglas's home. Now, this was, you know, John Brown was already, uh, you know, coming on the sites of the, you know, the civil government powers that be. And for Douglas to associate with Brown was becoming increasingly dangerous, uh, especially for Douglas. Shortly before the raid, Douglas traveled from Rochester via New York City to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Brown's communications headquarters. Brown wanted Douglas to participate in the raid, and they had discussed it for a whole day, but Douglas finally disappointed Brown by declining to join him, considering the mission suicidal. The mission was indeed a failure, and those of Brown's men who had not fled were killed or captured by local militia and U.S. Marines, the latter, this, the, the Marines, led by Robert E. Lee, of course, later a general in the Army of the Co Confederacy during the Civil War. Brown was tried for treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia, the murder of five men, and inciting a slave insurrection. He was found guilty of all charges and was hanged on December 2nd, 1859, the first person executed for treason in the history of the United States. The Harper's Ferry Raid and Brown's trial, both covered extensively in national newspapers, escalated tensions that led, a year later, to the South's long-threatened secession and the American Civil War. Southerners, of course, feared that others would soon follow in Brown's footsteps, encouraging and, and arming slave rebellions. Brown was a hero and an icon in the North. 
Union soldiers marched to the new song, John's, John Brown's Body, that portrayed him as a heroic martyr. After the raid, Douglas was accused of both supporting Brown and of not supporting him enough. And Douglas was nearly arrested on a Virginia warrant and fled for a brief time to Canada and later spent time in Great Britain and Ireland continuing his speeches against slavery. On December 20th, 1860, South Carolina delivered its ordinance of secession to the US federal government and shortly thereafter, the uh, militia of South Carolina fired upon Fort Sumter, uh, US um, uh, base, and that's in, in April of 1861, and that was the start of the Civil War. So um, again, this takes us up to the Civil War. Next time, I hope to talk about the splits that occurred between the northern churches, what later became the northern churches and the southern churches, and how, how these splits came about, of course, largely because of slavery, and how they impacted the church, and also how the war impacted the church, because it certainly had, um, obviously, the Civil War had a great impact on all aspects of uh, American life. Um, and finally, I have a page of footnotes. Um, Frederick Douglass wrote three autobiographies. Um, the last auto, you know, as he progressed through his life, he felt like he continued to basically add to and, uh, you know, what his uh, story was. <clears throat> and uh, the, the last one is The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. Um, these are readily available on, you know, you can read them on the internet, you can buy a copy, they're still in print. Um, I think I've got one somewhere in the house, um, but I encourage you to read that. It, um, he was a tremendous writer and speaker. His efforts to gain literacy, uh, you know, were totally successful. Um, and in fact, unfortunately, many Americans, when they read his, his works, they assumed that somebody else had written them. They, you know, were reluctant to give all, all credit to Douglas because his writing was so eloquent and his speeches were very eloquent as well. And for many Americans, it was amazing for them that a formerly enslaved black man could be such a powerful speaker, writer, and leader, but he indeed was.